Good morning. This is Greg Roman reporting live from the Middle East on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio, here with the Philadelphia Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. While I'm in the region, Gary's in the studio, being joined by our technical team, our producers over at WWDB, and also all of you, our listeners, in the Philadelphia region. Now, this has been a complicated week in the Middle East, especially from being able to have a ground-eye, bird's-eye view, or ground-perspective, bird's-eye view, looking at what's going on just here in the middle of the region. Right now, I am in an unnamed location. Tomorrow, I will be in Israel, and a little bit more about the work we're doing out here next week. But we have very exciting guests joining us this morning. First, Anne Barnard, the Beirut bureau chief of the New York Times. And second, an old friend of mine and an old friend of Gary from, I think, Gary's time at NYU, right? Yes. Tony Badran, research fellow at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, a specialist on Lebanon, Hezbollah, Syria, and the geopolitics of the Levant. Gary, it's been quite a week when we've seen not just more attacks on international shipping through the Straits of Hormuz, probably perpetrated by the Iranians, but also the U.S. announcement of three things that I think are significant towards the region. First, the deployment of another thousand troops to be able to increase monitoring on Iranian asymmetric intransigence in the Persian Gulf. Two, the sudden resignation of Defense Secretary-designate Patrick Shanahan, not just from his position as Acting Secretary of Defense, but also from the government writ large. He also got rid of his position as Deputy or, or the Undersecretary of the Department of Defense. And we also have a third thing which has been announced, which has been not receiving as much attention, but the Iranian-backed Houthi militia in Yemen, we talked about this last week, was able to take down an American drone over the Red Sea this week. We've had two attacks against two, now albeit they were unmanned, but two American targets, one directly by the Iranians coming from the Straits of Hormuz in the uh, event of a surface-to-air missile against the drone, and the second a surface-to-air missile drone hitting and, and, and shooting down a U.S. Reaper aircraft. Gary, what's your take on this? I think we need better drones. Uh, there, there, there's also a third. There's also a third report that the Iranians shot a surface-to-air missile at a U.S. drone that was monitoring that ship that had gone back. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm speaking about. Oh, okay, right. The one over the Straits of Hormuz. Yeah. When those uh, two Japanese-owned uh, tankers. I mean, we have caught the Iranians red-handed. You have op- electro-optical devices that were on a U.S. destroyer. Now, it was a few miles away, but with technology these days, you can see the guy's nose hairs coming on that little skiff that he was using to operate to put the mine on the um, shipping, uh, or or rather the cargo boat, or the oil tanker. We have Iranians. There's an Iranian-manufactured machine gun on the bow of the uh, skiff. You have a crew of what looks like 12 members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps there. They have an Iranian-designed mine that we know of from previous instances of looking at Iranian armaments. And if you think about it, what other country in the region would have the ability to deploy special forces to the most contested waterway 
were one of the hottest waterways in the Middle East. I mean, if it was right. the Bahraini or the Omani or the Emiratis or even the Saudis, don't you think the uh, Iranians would have had a problem with them operating in Iranian territorial waters? Yeah, you'd think. I mean, the, the, the only other possible culprit might be al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but I haven't heard about them operating boats of this type and, and sailing into international waters and, and attacking shipping. Right. Uh, and, we and know the Iranians they, have been practicing that for 40 years. AQAP would be it would make sense if it was in the uh, Straits of uh, Fars, right? Right. But in this area, I don't think so. And even then, the, had, the only possible intention, if AQAP was involved, would be to uh, cast blame on Iran. But the fact the fact is, we, we hear so much about false flag operations; they rarely happen. In the Middle East, not nearly as much as you'd think. So I'm, yeah. I think everybody knows Iran was responsible. But then, if everyone knows that Iran's responsible, what is Federico Mogherini, the EU representative for foreign security policy? Um, I forget the guy's name from Germany. Anyway, Germany's foreign minister, we can get that name in a second, is also saying that he needs more evidence. And we have Angela Merkel yesterday saying that perhaps it has come to time for the European Union to implement their sanctions bypass mechanism, something called INSTEX, I-N-S-T-E-X, right. which requires an Iranian system to also be set up. Think of it as like a swift money transfer system, right. but it's meant to not use the U.S. dollars so it doesn't touch on any American monetary instruments or on any American uh, right. banks or financial systems. And it's meant for the transfer of uh, funds to basically skirt around U.S. sanctions. But they say it's only for humanitarian deals, for medical deals, for uh, food aid. You know, think of the um, Iraq oil for food program right. back in the 90s. But just using that as an example, which is actually what um, the German foreign minister had been comparing it to, that was rampant with corruption. We had uh, Kofi Annan's son, I think, who was indicted for stealing right. a, a few billion uh, reals from that program. But why would the Europeans, you know, considering the fact that their economy might be damaged by American sanctions or just by the lack of goodwill with the United States, wants to set up a mechanism to go around American sanctions against Iran when it's not going to be good for their economies? They're basically casting their lot with Russia and China. China, who's already announced they continue to import Iranian oil. They have no intention on changing that. The Russians, who have just signed some major strategic deals for the development of Iran's natural gas sector in the Caspian Sea. What's the European motivation here to um, abrogate the American interest there? Well, in, in principle, I, I think the interest, they want to keep Iran uh, compliant with the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and but, but the thing is that there, there's not a whole lot they can do. I mean, they, they can set up instex, as, as you noted. They can, uh, the, you know, there, there have been other uh, uh, mechanisms that have put in place to ensure that, uh, you know, to, to ensure that European com companies are uh, have some protection from U.S. legal action and all that. But the fact is the U.S. Has, has largely bypassed governments. U.S. diplomats are out visiting these companies, these multinational corporations based in Europe and other places and telling them, look, don't do it. We're, we're, we're you know, going to, to, to 
crack down on sanctions violators to the fullest extent we can. And it's worked. And so even though the European governments are doing all sorts of things to sort of facilitate and encourage uh, European companies from not breaking the sanctions, they're they're mostly complying. Um, yeah. The, the two names you have to look for, for anyone who wants to get more in detail about um, this American uh, corporate tour de force, if we will, is Andrew Peake, the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Iraq, and also Joel Rayburn. I think he's the uh, the desk officer for Syria and Lebanon, and he might be the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs. There's also the new Assistant Secretary for the Near East, who was just confirmed, David Satterfield, and um, all important figures to follow in this developing story. We will be back with Anne Barnard after these messages. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio. We will be having our guest, Ann Barnard, join us in a few minutes. But first, Gary, there's a second story that I want to get to related to the region. We have other news coming out of Iran, which deals with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's stance towards the Shia country. As reported by Talking Points Memo on Time.com, the bottom line message is this. President Trump does not want to go to war with Iran. The remarks just came hours after Time Magazine published an interview in which President Trump, where he declared that he might take military action to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, but cast doubt on going to war to protect international oil supplies. The president was quoted as saying that he will not decide to take kinetic action if there is another attack on oil infrastructure. Pompeo also told reporters that we are there to deter aggression. President Trump does not want war as he briefed the contingent when he was at Florida with U.S. Central Command, saying that he would work 
to make sure that the U.S. has a coordinated response if Iran makes a bad decision. Gary, your thoughts about this sort of, you know, Texas two-step. You have Pompeo making a largely symbolic uh, gesture by visiting U.S. Central Command down in Florida. And he also says, we don't want war. Your thoughts? Well, Trump has been uh, speaking out and, and campaigning against the the uh, former Bush administration's war in Iraq uh, and other um, perpetual, what he calls perpetual wars, or what he called perpetual wars during the campaign in the Middle East. And so I, I think there, he, he does have a certain constituency, uh, sort of isolationist uh, conservatives um, in the United States who, who, who really uh, want to disengage, um, at least from any kind of kinetic uh, military deployment in the region. And of course, and, and it's, it's speak, very politically speaking, risky. Speaking about uh, military disengagement and also perpetual wars, I think that this might be a good time to pivot to our guest who will be joining us this morning. Uh, Anne, are you in Beirut? No, I'm in New York. Okay, so from the sunny uh, uh, New York City rather than the sunny mm -hmm. eastern Mediterranean coast, we are joined by Anne Barnard, the Beirut bureau chief of the New York Times. Beyond her work right now, having worked for the New York Times since 2013, Ms. Barnard has covered the Middle East and the Iraq War for the Boston Globe. She also worked as a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Moscow Times, and she is most currently the Edward R. Merrow Press Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And welcome to the uh, program. I guess you're, you're done in Beirut right now. Yes, I'm actually done with Beirut and with the fellowship, and I'm now back in New York uh, covering environment and climate change. But I was covering the war in Syria for uh, the previous uh, seven years. So uh, the environment and climate change, that kind of sounds like sabbatical versus being in uh, Beirut and in Damascus. Yes, well, I joke that I've uh, discovered the only beat that's uh, grimmer and more of a lost cause than that of Syria. <laughs> those uh, pictures that we saw coming out of Greenland yesterday with those dogs walking across uh, an open sea on an ice plane, except it looked like they were walking on water, is something that, right. I, um, that I think, uh, well, we can discuss it another time on a non-Middle East-oriented program, but I'm a big uh, believer that um, climate change is linked to national security issues, at least in the United States. Uh, there's a great Pentagon yeah. study that came out three years ago on that, but I digress. And What's the future of the war in Syria? When is it going to end? Well, there is a general impression that the war is now winding down, and that's true in terms of what military people would call a kinetic phase. There's still a very brutal war going on in Idlib province, but most of the rest of the military action has quieted down with President Bashar al-Assad uh, taking control of most of the western heavily populated part of Syria. But that doesn't mean that the conflict is over. None of the underlying issues have been solved. Uh, Assad has won uh, through military force and with the help of Russia and Iran, and which, that is without, um, without any uh, political concessions or reform of the much-feared security services that have vacuumed up uh, so many civilians and others into, into the torture prisons. So all of those issues remain. And uh, what, I don't think that we're going to see a recipe for stability or resolution, let alone um, accountability or transitional justice anytime soon. So let's go through a list of some of these outstanding issues in Syria. And 
I'm going to name maybe four or five, and I'm going to ask you to dissect two or three of them. And, and you choose which ones you think are the most important for our listeners to know about. The first is the underlying refugee crisis coming from the um, seven, eight million Syrian refugees, both internally displaced people and also those who have gone overseas, whether it's to Turkey, Lebanon, or Jordan, or even those who have passed through Geisenjep to the Mediterranean Sea and now find themselves in Europe by way of that Turkish uh, Greece isthmus there. The second issue is war crimes and those being held to account. The use of chemical weapons, the use of, like you said beforehand, torture prisons, uh, violating the law of war, and also the issues being dealt with after now that Assad has used every weapon in the book, except for maybe nuclear or radiological weapons, to um, keep his hold on power. The third issue is that of the uh, sectoral crises, whether it's the Sunnis uh, in, in the last redoubt of the resistance in Idlib province, the Kurds in the northeast of the country, um, where the Alawis and, and these new Shia pilgrims, if we could call them that, from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, from Iran, from Iraq. I don't know if we call them pilgrim, pilgrims or settlers or uh, expats. And what's going to happen with the underlying sectarian nature of the country. Uh, so from those three things, refugees, war crimes, and the redistribution of serious population. Which one would you want to tackle, and which one do you think is the most important issue to, uh, to resolve right now? Well, the first two are very closely interrelated and are related even to the issues of the, the rise of the right wing in Europe, the, the conflict over the future of Europe. I think um, when we look at refugees, first of all, we're talking about half the Syrian population displaced from their homes something like six or seven million inside the country and over five million, almost six million outside the country. And at least a million of those have gone on to Europe. So uh, that crisis is not going to be resolved anytime soon because there are not the conditions for refugees to return safely, which is directly related to the second issue. Without security reform, without guarantees that going back to Syria, you won't be sucked into the system of torture prisons, many people are not going to take the risk to go back. On top of that, the, the jobs, the, the housing, the, the infrastructure is just uh, destroyed in many cities. So uh, the, the hope of, of making some kind of deal with, with the Assad regime in order to, in the hopes that that will send refugees en masse back to Syria, that's not going to happen. We've already seen reports of Syrians who return being arrested, being harassed, being uh, shaken down by the increasingly chaotic uh, set of uh, militias and regime security forces. So those two things are very closely related. When it comes to, a, and, and I should add, you mentioned the Shia, I think the larger issue more than settlers or people moving in, although there, there are uh, reports that Iran is offering its allies, people who have bought their um, properties of displaced Syrians and, and that kind of, uh, as you said, population redistribution. I don't think that's as massive an issue right now as the fact that many uh, competing pro-government militias are in this sort of ad hoc way running different parts of the country and even competing with each other for the spoils uh, essentially a mafia-like uh, way of, of funding themselves and, and taking 
all kinds of bribes and arresting people for ransom all across. And this is, at the moment, victimizing pro-government Syrians as well as anti-government. So when it comes to the war crimes, uh, as I said, there is no hope of security reform anytime soon. And another thing that's very important to many Syrians is accountability. Right now, Assad has not relaxed his control over what people are allowed to say or do or complain about. So you have something like 120,000 people who have been arrested and never released. So they're either dead or still missing inside the, the prison system. And they have millions of relatives. And that wound is repressed both psychologically and politically in the sense that people are not even allowed to talk about that. So many Syrians say there's no way we'll have peace and reconciliation in our country until we address these issues. Now, there's no political incentive for Assad or his allies to do that. What is being done right now as sort of a better-than-nothing measure is that Syrian survivors and Syrian lawyers are working with European lawyers to bring cases in European countries that have a system called universal jurisdiction, where they can bring this war is, uh, something. Cases. This is something I'm familiar with. We, we've had universal jurisdiction. Now, whether you want to talk about being abused or not, um, in Spain and the U.K., um, my, my background is Israeli a, a little bit, so we've seen some some ministers from the Israeli government having been stopped in, in uh, Heathrow Airport because there was a private citizen's complaint being brought against them using your universal jurisdiction jurisdiction uh, uh, you know law. But um, do, do you really think that after the entire Syrian enterprise and its leadership has been sanctioned by the U.S., by the European Union, by the United Nations, and we see that the individuals and the countries backing the Syrian regime to the hilt, the Russians, the Chinese, um, the Turks, if we want to include the Astana process. Do you really think that this idea of a international transparent judicial process will bring Assad and his allies to kneel? I mean, if anything, I think it'll just make them more isolationist, make them tur turn, turn more towards Russia to, to give them a little bit more backbone to reject any refugees coming back to the country. I'm with you. I think that justice has to be attained, and I am all for that. But in terms of the real politique, what's that going to do to get the Syrians their homes back? Right. Well, you, you touched on a very important issue there, which is that uh, universal jurisdiction and international justice in general has always uh, had a practical problem, which is that the members of the Security Council don't ever want it used against their own allies. So Russia has vetoed <laughs> repeatedly uh, efforts to uh, create a, a UN or international tribunal for Syria, just as the United States uh, objects whenever someone tries to bring up Israeli war crimes or American war crimes. And as well, you know, I, I think uh, I just want I want I want to hold off on there for a second. I understand what we're talking about here is creating a parallel between. Uh, uh, mechanist, the mechanistic debate on whether it's possible yes. to bring up a, um, a war crime. But, but the U.S. objection is very different from the Russian objection, insofar as the United States says that a country like Israel has the judicial institutions and the democratic institutions to be able to deal with um, those allegations in country, thereby not triggering the Rome statute, versus Syria, which the gravity of the crimes the uh, uh, the largest which the regime has used to be able to try to survive the hundreds of thousands that have been killed. So maybe we can talk mechanistically 
about this, but whether no, the it's the moral the structure of this or, system, the, the structure of this system right, is such right. that that those debates are not going to be resolved. You know, that the, that a meaningful conversation about the differences between one set of war crimes and another, we don't even get to that point. So yeah, right. You're so, you're you're right, and it's because so, of the uh, disproportionate power that the uh, P five have, I guess. Yes, and 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 then the other problem is that. Right now, um, progress has been made in German and French and other courts, and actually arrest warrants have been issued for top sitting security officials in the Assad government. But those people are not going to travel to Europe to be arrested. But that in itself is is at least a consequence for them. They can't go on shopping sprees. They can't go and meet with security officials and set themselves up as counterterrorism partners. Uh, and again, we're talking about a very uh, dismal situation where there aren't any levers to pull. And for, for many Syrians, that's better than nothing. And they don't want to see war criminals taking refuge in Europe and getting away with it, either from the government side or from militant groups like ISIS. Um, so, so this is, and the other benefit of this process, according to the people involved in it, is that at least it keeps the issue on the table. It keeps it front and center and it, it gives a little more leverage to the international community. And it, uh, continues sort of a discovery process where continue to find out who exactly the perpetrators are and how they can maybe be brought to justice in the future. But again, as you say, it's very unsatisfying in terms of any practical um, use in, in the near term. Right. Uh, Gary, did you want to draw a parallel between your um, previous statement about the U.S. being tired of international conflict and maybe try to apply that in a question? to Anne about Syria? Um, well, I guess my question on uh, Syria, I, I've, I've been reading through Anne's reporting. It's extraordinarily detailed on the, on the uh, some 128,000 people who have been uh, through the Syrian prison system, um, or no, who are still in the Syrian prison system, who haven't emerged or, or, or are presumed dead, yeah. right? Uh, which, which is just a staggering... Number and I, it, and I guess it, it, it raises the question: um, if there's any prospect of a negotiated solution, not not necessarily a political solution, but even one that would allow the return of the refugees, um, you know, it, it, is any regime that has committed atrocities of that level can any can any especially a regime in which responsibility for the atrocities is so widely dis dispersed among a fairly large, uh, predominantly Alawite security elite. It, is it possible for such a regime to make the kind of credible assurances that would bring a large number of refugees home? I mean, I wouldn't return to Syria if I was uh, a refugee. Right. Mazen Darwish, who is one of the, the Syrian human rights lawyers and torture survivors working on these cases, says, why would I, I, I was lucky to escape with my life. Why would I go back and, and risk it again when right. nothing's changed? Uh, and so and, that, I and as you covered, I think in one of your articles, a lot of the people who have, who have uh, recently accepted these reconciliation agreements where they, they return to their homes and, and promise not to, to undertake political activity, they've been arrested. Recently, right? Yes, and and and, they, and you know you never know what can happen to others in the future. So it, so, so it seems Even, to, it seems to me that from the beginning of the war, I mean, it, well, just looking at the fact that they're arresting people who signed the reconciliation agreements, that's not a strategy of trying to get more people to sign reconciliation agreements and return, right? 
I, I mean, unfortunately, through my years of, of reporting on Syria and going to Syria and speaking to uh, regime supporters and officials, uh, what I understand is that they actually don't want those people back uh, at, at, at a fundamental level. You know, Assad is, I met Assad in an interview with uh, several uh, other journalists, and he talked about how now the social fabric in Syria is even better than before, and we have a more homogeneous country. And right. so the implication is that we got rid of the bad apples. And I once spoke to a person who was close to Assad's the father and the son, um, who said this was very early in the conflict when the numbers of dead and refugees were much lower. Um, and he said, you know, if Hafez, uh, Assad's father and predecessor, had been around, he would have ended this much sooner, even if he had to kill five million people. And that number really stuck with me. At first, I thought he was being rhetorical. And he said, no, no, I really mean that. Now, five million is exactly the number of people who are gone. So, um, so and I, I, another anecdote, uh, I, there's a Syrian I know who is, uh, speaks English, knows uh, international uh, people, and uh, is Sunni. And he was called to the security services, and they said to him, we don't have anything on you, but we have a question mark about you. Why are you still here? So in other words, a person who's educated, who's connected to the rest of the world, who's Sunni, who's a professional, why are you still here? Right. What are you you know, as if they want him to go. So, right. um, so I don't really think that it's, that it's a problem for them, you know, if, if uh, those people never come back. Right. He's saying, my ethnic cleansing worked. What do I have any problems to be able to worry about? I mean, that's basically, if you read between the lines, it's a more homogenous country. It's uh, more in my favor. You know, these people support me. Of course, because you killed everyone else or you expelled the rest. Um, or terrified I mean, people into silence, you know, and right. into inactivity. There's a lot of people that are still there who, who still, you know, quietly oppose the government, but they can't do anything. One quick follow-up question, Greg. Sure. Uh, th these reconciliation agreements, from my, my understanding, at least the ones that are uh, have been negotiated with, you know, particular villages or towns, that a lot of them have been uh, mediated by Russians on the ground in Syria, and that the Russians are, are seem to be pushing these kind of uh, local agreements. Um, I noticed in, in one of your most recent articles, you'd mentioned that the Syrians started releasing the names of people who died in, in prisons under Russian pressure. How, in, how influential, or uh, are, are, what, what capacity does Russia have to change Syrian behavior? Well, Ru Russia certainly has more capacity than any other player, but nonetheless, its leverage and its, um, you know, free hand in doing that does seem to be strangely limited. And that's been another uh, interesting skill of Assad and one that is also modeled on his father, where uh, on some level, even allies uh, cannot tell them what to do. And I think that the, the Russia would like to put away the prisoner issue because it's the, it's one issue that, you know, indiscriminate bombardment. Okay, you know they can they can say everyone has to 
fight terrorism and we're, you know, they always say they're fighting terrorism and they, and they'll say, well, you, you know, to, to fight terrorists, you're going to kill some kids along the way. And that's an argument that we have heard from the United States as well. But, uh, but when it comes to this kind of prison system that's, you know, reminiscent of the Russian gulag, um, nobody can justify that. And so Russia would like to sort of end it. And one, one way to end it is to say, you know what, everybody who is in prison, they're dead. Let's move on. Um, and so in a way, it's resolving the situation to release um, information very belatedly to families and say, yes, your relative died in prison five years ago. And the way Syrians interpret that, first of all, they, there's the, the people whose deaths they confirmed are only a fraction of those who are still missing. So there's still many families left in total limbo. But on top of that, Syrians interpret this as saying not as a gesture of reconciliation, but basically, a, you know, a victory lap saying, yes, we did this and we can admit it now because nobody's going to touch us. Right. So that's so that's the way that comes across. You, however, Russia may have intended it. And I want to thank you for joining us this morning on MEF radio here in Philadelphia and wish you the best of luck with your new beat up in New York. Thank you very much. After these messages, Tony Badron. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio. I'm Greg Roman here with Gary Gamble reporting from the region. Gary is in Philadelphia. And our next guest joins us, I think, from the mean streets of New York City, but a man who grew up in the mountains of Beirut. Tony Badran is a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Lebanon, Hezbollah, Syria, and the geopolitics of the Levant. Born and raised in Lebanon, Tony has testified in the House of Representatives on several, several occasions regarding U.S. policy towards Iran, Syria, and Lebanon. His research currently focuses on the relationship between Iran's Hezbollah model and regional states, as well as the history of and future scenarios for Israel-Hezbollah wars. He's a columnist and Levant analyst for Tablet Magazine. Tony, welcome back to the program. Nice, uh, nice to be with you, Greg. Thanks very much for having me. 
And I think the last time that we were all together was back in September of 2017 when uh, we may have decided to cause a little bit of a ruckus with the Turks uh, in Old City, Philadelphia. But I've been following your work for the last two years, and i got to tell you, you have some of the best analysis on these issues out there in print. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. So we've been watching uh, from afar, and I'm a little bit closer than you guys right now, what Iran has been doing to stir up the hornet's nest in the Middle East in response to ever-increasing U.S. sanctions. We hear a lot about what Iran itself is capable of, but I want to list a few events for you and then get your take on where the next area of Iranian proxy activity might be to either hedge or agitate America or allies. So we have three attacks on shipping, uh, two at sea, four in the port in the uh, United Arab Emirates, with limpet mines, explosions above the waterline, indicating that it's more of a nuisance. We can sink your ship, but we'll just show you we can do some damage to it temporarily, occurring first in May, then in uh, Oman over the weekend. Now, the second attack that we see is the Houthis using uh, cruise missiles, unmanned aerial vehicles, um, even some suicide bombers in some instances, attacking American allies' targets in both Yemen itself, uh, Abha Airport in Saudi Arabia. And we also see the activation of Iranian proxies, or, or alleged Iranian proxies, with the uh, Katusha rocket attacks over the weekend that took place on an American base north of Iraq, where American F-16s are stationed that were supplied to the Iraqi Air Force. And lastly, and I'm not sure if this is as connected to those three previous types of incidents, but we have uh, Hamas and the Islamic Jihad prior to the announcement of more U.S. sanctions on Iran at the beginning of May, launching a volley of 600 rockets at southern Israel proper, leading to the deaths of four Israeli civilians. Is this all part of the wider U.S.-Iranian uh, dance that's going on in the region, the tit-for-tat in response to the U.S. upping their sanctions and isolating the mullahs? Or are there separate little mini-battles going on being orchestrated by the Iranians but not in concert? Um, I think it's uh, it's rather tempting to uh, to look at it as separate incidents, but I I have a feeling that it's not. I mean, you uh, the succession of the events coupled with the statements of intent by the Iranians, which you know co un not coincidentally end up translating into action, uh, would 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 argue against sort of a disjointed approach. I think uh, it was, you, you mentioned the uh, Islamic Jihad uh, attacks in, uh, in Gaza. I mean, that was, it, it was seen very clearly as an Iranian attempt to, uh, to, uh, to light up that front. And you, you also had a couple of very minor incidents coming from Syria also, not just in terms of movement of um, hardware and rockets and missiles and, and, and systems, which which the Israelis then uh, destroyed, but also the lobbying of um, of rockets uh, uh, from from uh, southern Syria onto onto northern Israel. Although they didn't get too much attention and they were minor, still the idea is that it's a reminder by the Iranians of the various assets that it has in the region 
that could hit and target the United States alliance system in its totality, from the Mediterranean to the Gulf, targeting specifically its two pillars, Israel and Saudi Arabia, targeting security uh, of, of allied states, but also uh, international uh, energy and trade routes uh, in the Gulf as well. So one thing we haven't talked about, or at least we haven't necessarily seen, and this is an area where you're an expert, is the activation of the Hezbollah front, which is always something that I think um, is of concern to uh, both Israel, to the United States. What's the uh, Lebanese angle from all of this? Why has that front remained quiet while uh, Gaza, Syria, Iraq, uh, most of the Gulf has lit up? So I think uh, unlike in the Gulf, uh, and where, where the ability to attack is, is more limited, to, to, to do reprisal attacks is more limited, uh, because uh, although everyone has pointed the finger at Iran, uh, you know, you have to decide where you're going to retaliate, right? So if you're going to retaliate, you know, you can retaliate, let's say, against the Houthis in Yemen, uh, which is what the Saudis uh, would do, and, and that would be the end of it, and then the dynamic would continue as it, as it was. Or you would then have to take direct action against Iran, which is not something that anyone is going to, to, to do, uh, to take lightly or to proceed with without, uh, you know, I mean, you would have to do that with a lot of caution. In the case of Lebanon, it's very clear-cut. You have a, a state that is very capable of defending itself, Israel, and that has been preparing for the scenario for years, and whose explicit position is that anything that comes from Lebanon next time, we are going to flatten the entire country. So it then gives pause to the Iranians, given that Hezbollah is their biggest asset in the region, that if you are going to use it, then you are going to certainly lose it after that, right? So there's going to be a massive war, for sure, at the end of which Hezbollah is going to be battered, Lebanon is going to be battered. This is at a time when you're also suffering from economic sanctions and uh, your ability then to rebuild Hezbollah as had happened since after the 2006 war is going to be a lot slower and a lot more complicated. Um, the ability, let's say, of uh, other Gulf Arab countries to chip in as they had done after 2006, is going to be non-existent this time around. So it's a much, much more costly decision on their part that would uh, be kind of more like a, a, last, uh, a last type of effort that they would do. So I don't think they will take that very lightly, simply because Israel is very capable of defending themselves and, and have, have made their intentions quite clear. And like you said, this new regional bloc, I, mean, I, I like you to comment on this because I know our, our mutual uh, friend, colleague, uh, Lee Smith, has certain opinions about this. But um, would you go so far as to say that there is a strategic quartet, which didn't exist back in 2006, which might even give more hesitancy to Iran to not activate Hezbollah? You've got the Egyptians, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Israelis almost in lockstep under an American umbrella. And then America also has some non-state proxy actors available at its disposal as well. And I don't know if the KRG, the Kurdish regional government in Iraq, northern Iraq, or even the uh, 
the southeastern uh, Turks there, or the Turks, excuse me, the Kurds in, in northeast uh, Syria would be willing to get involved. But is there some sort of strategic parity that the U.S. has built up now with Arab and non-Arab Middle East actors that can act as a united front against Iran? And is that giving Iran some pause? Well, I don't think in the, it, it, it applies in the case of Hezbollah. In the case of Hezbollah, the, the response is going to become, I mean, the actor that's going to have the ground game and the military game is Israel. The, it's not, the, the Saudis and the Emiratis are not going to factor in that, uh, in that scenario. Uh, I, I mean, if you're talking about a broader posture of deterrence vis-a-vis Iran, uh, I, I guess you could, you could say that the Emiratis and the Saudis um, have a, a major role in the sort of the Red Sea, Horn of Africa, and Yemen uh, uh, you know, theaters. Um, you know, we can, you know, we can debate the, the, their, their efficiency in, in that regard. Uh, but, but it certainly is there. I mean, they have a much bigger economic role, for instance, the ability of the United States to zero out uh, Iranian oil uh, output, for instance, is directly related to Saudi Arabia's ability to fill that gap. So there is a role that's not necessarily military, military but it, it does have its, uh, its, its function. And uh, I, I would discount the KRG and the Kurdish. Uh, they're, they're not useful uh, assets in this, uh, in this kind of confrontation at all. But the idea of, uh, of Hezbollah specifically is, is the domain of, of, of Israel. And, and they, are, they understand full well what the implication of a war would be. And, um, uh, and this is, remember, I mean, look, you're seeing another situation, which is actually rather incredible uh, uh, in, in the Lebanese-Israeli uh, uh, arena, is that the United States is leading some insane, misguided uh, uh, endeavor to start talk, uh, talks to resolve the maritime border uh, dispute between Israel and, and Lebanon. At a time when they're trying to um, uh, uh, apply maximum economic pressure on Iran, so on the one hand, uh, <laughs> it, give, it gives in, it gives an incentive. You you can say for the Lebanese not to uh, not to try anything, not but th- but that but that assumes that they were going to try something anyway against Israel, which I doubt very much. But on the other hand, you're also saying, hey, look, we're going to put money, we're looking to put money in the treasury of a, of a state that's run by Hezbollah at a moment when we're running a maximum pressure economic campaign against the Iranians. It kind of makes no sense. And the Israelis are somehow also joining in this dance for some, for some weird reason. But it, it is, um, uh, you know, so, so, but all of these elements, the deterrent element, the understanding that they would pay a very significant price, uh, and their desire to try to make money <laughs> if the United States is offering it, is going to uh, is going to militate against them, um, 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 uh, going to war with, with with Israel at this moment, unless, like I said, it becomes so bad that it becomes a last resort. And, is, and Iran's back is against the wall, then maybe they might activate Hezbollah, but I don't see us anywhere near that right now. You, Tony, you've written extensively uh, about uh, this idea that Lebanon is essentially controlled by Hezbollah, um, by which you mean that the, the Lebanese army now uh, operates as, I think you use the term, an adjunct of Hezbollah. Um, the auxiliary, yeah. Auxiliary, right. Yeah. Uh, 
And as as we saw from the the last cabinet uh, formation, which lasted I don't know how many months, dating back to last year, Hezbollah essentially has veto power over uh, veto power over cabinet appointments. And if right. you know, it, it, certainly if you if you exercise that kind of control over the army, if you exercise that kind of control over cabinet appointments, you you would seem to control Lebanon. Now, when Secretary of State Pompeo visited the region a few months ago, there was a lot of speculation in the Lebanese media that he was go- that he was going to hit Hezbollah's Achilles' heel, which is really its allies, as you've pointed out numerous times. That Hezbollah wouldn't be able to exert this kind of control if it if it didn't have its alliance with Michel Aoun, uh, the uh, head of one of the Christian parties in Lebanon, with Nabi Berry and others. And there were reports in the Lebanese press that Pompeo privately really laid into Aoun and Berry and others, telling them, in effect, that they could be designated under expanded uh, Iran sanctions, designated as, as supporters of terrorism, which uh, presumably would, would, would uh, discourage some of these allies from working with Hezbollah. Um, do you see that happening, or do you think it should happen? Uh, I don't see it happening, no. I think there, there's a lot of uh, conflicting reports uh, about what was actually said. And, I, and, and there's a better case to be made that actually, while the United States may have expressed uh, displeasure with, with the honests, especially the foreign minister, Gibran Basile's positions, uh, um, and, uh, you know, with regard to Hezbollah, they have... They have uh, they, they were clear that there were not going to be any sanctions imposed on them. Rather, it was kind of more of an expression of preference. I mean, you know, you can say warning, I suppose, but unless you do it, it it's really meaningless. Uh, but I think it's all of this is a misunderstanding of key dynamics in Lebanon, right? It doesn't, um, the idea of, of trying to woo people away from Hezbollah and somehow that will minimize Hezbollah's power misunderstands how the thing works in Lebanon, right? I mean, bottom line, Hezbollah's power in Lebanon is not because of its alliance with Michel Aoun. Hezbollah's power in Lebanon is because of its guns, because of its total control of the economy, and because of its ability to use its power whenever it wants to, uh, and, and its complete con- total lock on the Shia community as well. So the idea, so when Michel Aoun goes to Hezbollah, Michel Aoun is not going to do Hezbollah a favor. He's going to seek a favor from Hezbollah. He's going as a supplicant in order to get, because he knew, for instance, he would never become president unless Hezbollah backed him to become president. But, but can we not increase the, the price tag of, of accepting those favors from Hezbollah? Certainly if you accept uh, material assistance or give oh, material absolutely. assistance if to a terrorist If your question is whether, whether we should be sanctioning Hezbollah as allies, I say absolutely. Right. That's, that's, that wasn't at all what I was implying. I was implying, on the contrary, when we say, no, we want to warn them so that we woo them away. Or so on. I'm saying you, anyone who is with Hezbollah should be hit, right? right? And that applies not just to, uh, you know, to, um, to allies like Michel Aoun and Nabih Birri. But now you have to start looking at various so-called institutions in the country that are also uh, directly... So why do we draw, for instance, a distinction 
between how Hezbollah can, let's say, siphon funds from a certain ministry directly now that it controls versus municipalities that are directly controlled by Hezbollah who legitimately take money from the state to service uh, their, their uh, constituents and therefore relieve Hezbollah as well. So why does that why is that okay versus direct siphoning, which is not okay? Right. So, I mean, I think the idea of uh, the bottom line when you strip it all down is the dichotomy that the United States government continues to maintain, that it wants to, that it wants to have this surgical approach towards Lebanon where it uh, categorizes very finely, you know, who is Hezbollah, who is anti-Hezbollah, and so on and so forth. It is, is a fool's errand. It, it's, it just, it's not how the dynamic works. And it, all it does, it ends up giving Hezbollah a lot of loopholes uh, and places to hide. They understand, basically, that, has, that the United States wants to save Lebanon, and it considers Lebanon a hostage. And so Hezbollah will understand, okay, great. So we will continue to hide behind that hostage. If there's a line that the United States is not willing to cross, That'll be where Hezbollah is going to be hiding all the time. You know, not to not to say that there's some more devious ways that the U.S. could approach this issue, but there's a lot of Achilles' heels, Gary. Besides just um, Hezbollah's enemies in state, I mean, you've got I think an extra 25 percent of the population uh, Syrian uh, refugees, Syrian Sunni refugees. Now, I'm not saying that they're any better than. Um, some of the other groups that are operating there in terms of their reliability as a political actor or in terms of their ability to be a, um, a friend of the U.S. But, you know, Hezbollah is, is in country, outnumbered now by the Sunni, uh, uh, pro-Sunni Maronite and Druze populations. And just like uh, Walid is the sort of weather vane, you know, the, the Druze chief of staff or the Druze head of the Lebanese Socialist Parties, is is uh, sort of the weather vane of, of Lebanese politics. You now have different Hezbollah-oriented ministries stopping the provision of services to Syrian refugee camps in the eastern part of the country with the hope that they'll go back to Syria. I don't think it's because they really care about them being in country. I think they see them as a strategic threat to Hezbollah's continued control over that country. What about trying to find a way to create more political cleavages, Tony, between Hezbollah and their natural uh, frenemies, if you will? In the country, there is. I think that I think that also is 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 a, is a waste of time because basically the bottom, the, the idea of that you're going to win a battle of politics and narrative with Hezbollah is 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 in the realm of the in, inconsequential. I mean, that's it's all fine, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, bottom line is that the Lebanese all have made it very clear that if push comes to shove, where what's required is uh, a war between us and Hezbollah, we don't want it. We are not prepared to do it. We're not going to fight it, period. That's the bottom line. And Hezbollah has pushed it exactly to that end, where it says, look, if anyone is going to come near us, we are going to use our weapons. So that's your choice. And the Lebanese have made their choice. The choice is we are not going to fight Hezbollah. That's what Saad Hariri, the prime minister, has done. Saad Hariri was in exile. He decided, I want to be back as prime minister. He understood that to be back as prime minister, he has to go and kiss Hezbollah's ring, which he did very willingly and voluntarily, and even above and beyond what was required. 
Michel Aron, same thing from much earlier, from 2006 and 2005, understood. This is, this is, my, this is the, the key power center in the country. That's the guy I'm going to, these are the guys I'm going to align with, period. Now, a political alliance becomes also a, an economic alliance because the country's economy is such as it is, is dependent on two things, on the constant inflow of hard currency from the outside, which, has, which used to come you know, from the Saudis, from uh, you know, uh, remittances, uh, from you know, Europeans and so on. All of that has pretty much dried up. Uh, the only other place where that money comes from is Hezbollah's illicit activities which bring uh, hard currency into the country. I mean, the other place you can argue now is actually European and Western aid for the Syrian refugees, which brings in, you know, good, yeah. So, so my point is, my point is there's a, there is a, an economic as well as a political alliance that encompasses all the big barons in Lebanon and ties them to Hezbollah one way or another. So the notion that there's going to be anyone in Lebanon who's going to be really seriously challenging beyond, you know, this nonsense of narrative, whatever the hell that means, uh, uh, <laughs> if there's going to be anything that's going to be real, the Lebanese position is clear. We are not willing to do it. Full stop. Which, which uh, it seems like that invites an external uh, solution to this current conundrum, which is... You've argued that Lebanon should be treated as a state right. sponsor of terrorism, right? That USAID should be cut. I mean, yeah. look, if you look at if you look at Lebanon, and okay... Tony, I'm going to cut well, you off. we got 15 seconds. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the short answer yes no? is you have, a, you have a terrorist group that runs the country. That, that I think, should satisfy any category, whether Lebanon... And it's running operations and global... Uh, criminal enterprises headquartered in Lebanon. Uh, so I think under any other, if, if this was any other group, the United States would not have hesitated. Thank you. Tony Pedron, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, joining us this morning on Lebanon, Syria, and all kinds of other exciting issues. Tony, I hope you'll come back. My pleasure, of course. Thank you. Gary Gamble, Greg Roman, Lisa Barbunas, Delaney Anchik, all of us at WWDB and the Middle East Forum wish you a good week. And hopefully there'll be a little bit more peace in the Middle East as I'll be spending a long time here this summer. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you next Wednesday.